0: acoustic I love the music Welcome back to Hanging with History This is season 1 That miracle that happened that one time This is episode 126 The Industrial Revolution the entrepreneurs And this episode we'll look up from the larger forces like the factory system labor productivity information theory and such things that we examined last episode And focus in on the entrepreneurs. One question, were entrepreneurs a limiting factor in the industrial revolution? This is sort of a funny question, isn't it? The idea is there are the sorts of people who can imagine a new and better way to do things and who are willing to take financial risks and who are also capable of organizing the 500 things a business needs to do and to end. I, I suppose this is related to the thing I try to tell young people about skill combinations, how two or three skills together can make you a more effective and formidable person in the job market, that certain combinations are really quite rare and valuable, that we're seldom capable of seeing ourselves as we are in relation to others, and surely this must apply to entrepreneurial skills, and those skills are therefore rare. And most entrepreneurs fail, or at least their ventures fail, as they misjudge the market the tastes and abilities of others, and most of all, misjudge themselves. And yet, entrepreneurial skills are close to universal, seen on every continent. We can see signs of it even in Sumerian cuneiform tablets. So these skills might be a necessary but not nearly sufficient requirement for economic efflorescence or intensive growth. The question of the rarity of entrepreneurial skills and their limitations in practice, you know, the one question, is it safe, like physically safe to be an entrepreneur, appears to be an important differentiator between theory number three of the origins of the Industrial Revolution and theory number four. A quick refresh. Theory number three is that the elites are terrible all the time, everywhere, suppressing the populace for their own gain, making innovation either impossible or pointless. And that for a brief moment, in two countries, the United Provinces and Britain, they stopped being so terrible. And somehow a combination of capital punishment, cannibalism, and Calvinism allowed the Dutch and British elites to be just a little bit less shitty than usual, and so the commercial revolution and the industrial revolution occurred. And if you've understood my alliterative references to capital punishment, cannibalism, and Calvinism, then you've been the platonic ideal of listeners to this podcast. Whereas theory number four is the abundance of mechanical technical skills and openness to new ways of doing things set in an environment of the rule of law and private property kicked off the miracle. See, it differentiates, but there is a sense where theory number four only works because of theory number three. One enlightenment value was the classification of knowledge, so let's use it. So who were they, these entrepreneurs, in an old-fashioned class background sort of way? And did the religious minorities, the dissenters, produce more than their share? Mokyr specifically tackles the myth of the self-made man in the enlightened economy, except, as we'll see, it turns out that the myth of the self-made man is a totally true myth. Uh, only an exaggerated strawman version of it is a myth. So, there's this concept in economic history of the vital few. These few people who pushed the Industrial Revolution forward, whose lack might not have been made up for by somebody else. Abraham Darby, John Kay, both of them, Henry Court, Joseph Black, Joseph Priestley, James Watt, John Smeaton, Mark Brunel, Lavoisier, Adam Smith, Josiah Wedgwood, people like that, set against the competing idea that most or all the textile innovations would have been just invented by somebody else, which is a pretty reasonable assertion. I mean, how three people near simultaneously invent the mining safety lamp, vulcanizing rubber, and the telegraph. In some sense, there's no objective answer to the question of individual great people. I appreciate Mike Duncan, who added the requirement that for great man theory to be true, it must have a great idiot corollary. People influential in the history of revolutions like Tsar Nicholas II and her own King Charles I are as influential in their own ineffective way as Lenin and Oliver Cromwell. So Mokir asks, who were these vital few? Who were these Horatio Alger heroes who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps? He first refers to the myth of the self-made man, how it was established as a meme. In Victorian times and refused to die ever since, though it is a myth. And then we dive into the details, and hilariously to me, we discover it's kind of not a myth at all. Richard Arkwright, his employee John Kay, invents a jenny and he powers it with the water frame. Arkwright is the son of a tailor, apprenticed as a barber. He finances his first mill because he invents a successful hair dye, certainly, the self made man. Jedediah Strutt, later Ockwright's partner, another self-made man in hosiery and stockings, rising up from being an apprentice wheelwright. Josiah Mason, who I'd only ever heard of before as a great philanthropist, was the son of a carpet weaver. He tried and failed at half a dozen occupations before becoming a manufacturer of steel pins. And there's a database of 226 early Industrial Revolution entrepreneurs whose father's occupation is known. Sixteen were mere laborers. Twenty were gentry. The rest were middle class and therefore not self-made men. And that's what I laughed out loud. A 17th century tailor, a carpet weaver, barbers, a yeoman farmer. These are not substantial men leaving legacies to their children, funding their kids' factories. I mean, they may have provided good values. Intellectual curiosity, some mechanical knacks and skills of the hand to their kids, but essentially, all but the 20 gentry or minor nobility, 206 out of the 226, were really self made men in any reasonably generous sense. By demolishing and deconstructing a myth, you have truly and wonderfully proved it's not a myth at all. Maybe more practically, about half of those founders were already involved in manufacturing at some point in the trade as a worker, manager, or a merchant providing an input or selling the output of manufacturing before becoming a founder themselves. So half are from inside the industry with special, useful knowledge. And they're just doing something better. But that means half were from outside industry. And this is vital because, quote, Every branch of manufacturing was contestable, unquote. Not true on the continent where permission to enter a field was usually required. This is a vital stimulus to new ideas and better applications, quote. By the end of the 18th century, it could be said that British industry was a free-for-all. Progress was the progeny of contestability, easy entry, and hard-fought competitive markets, unquote. And this, by the way, is quite rare in human history. Typically, once a family clan or region dominates a market, they twist politics to lock down their advantage for decades or centuries. And this openness meant that along with America and Australia, Canada, which does exist, it is a real place despite what some have said, Britain was a key place for foreigners to immigrate to. And this is a funny fact, isn't it? Basically, the world at that time, everywhere in the world, was pretty awful. But if you could get to an Anglophone country, things might get better for you. The United Provinces were another place, at least for most of the 18th century, at the time. But you could joke that the Dutch speak better English than a good fraction of Americans, and it would only be half a joke. So, many foreigners among the vital few, the Brunells, we've discussed at length, obviously top level inventors and Engineers, but always needing a good business partner to work with, sort of lacking in that part of entrepreneurship. Louis Paul invented carding machines and spinning jennies, though others improved them and got patents. So these are all Frenchmen. Germans like Frederick Koenig, entrepreneur in steam-powered printing. After failing to get any interest in his ideas in Germany and Russia, he made his biggest contribution in England. Uh, Frederick Windsor. Well, he changed his name to Windsor one of the key developers of gas lighting technology, another German, a bunch of others I won't mention, but I will mention Johann Schwepp from Switzerland. And yes, he took Joseph Priestley's invention, carbonated water, and turned it into a soda empire, Schwepp's. Too fun. Erasmus Darwin gave him a major boost by promoting carbonated water as a health food and a remedy for kidney stones in, I believe, the Botanic Garden. But it could have been Zoonomia. Answers to hanging with history podcast at gmail.com. Mokir makes the point that institutions and entrepreneurs swirl together in an interesting way. This will, this will be a difficult concept for some of you, but let me try. Um, in most of the world, for basically all human time, the primary concern has been redistribution of wealth rather than the generation of wealth where everything is about redistribution, your talented people go into the military, religion, law, or bureaucracy. And this sort of thing isn't taught anymore. And if you are in business, you try to get special privileges for your family, clan, guild, or association to exclude others. When, very rarely as it happens, it is safe and socially encouraged to generate wealth, many of the most talented, those with some appetite for risk-taking anyway, go into business. I might go a step farther and suggest that when this stops being true, you may be witnessing a society in decline. And there's another element to consider, and that is religion. And let me pause here to hector those of you who've downloaded but not listened to the Religion for the Lower Classes episode. Uh, this is the last time I'll do this. That's about 20% of you. For some reason, you think religion's boring or incomprehensible, but it really isn't. And that episode is chock full of important insights about how the poor in Britain stopped being so poor. Sorry about that. Here's a somewhat related fact. Dissenters made up about 7% of the British population, but about 50% of the entrepreneurs. 7% and 50%. Partly, that is because they were excluded from university, like Oxford or Cambridge, from government service of almost any kind, and from voting, of course. Now, the uncomfortable truth is these forms of discrimination were actually an advantage. It's not just a British thing. You see the same pattern where a high percentage of French entrepreneurs are Protestant. In many parts of Europe, Jews had similar outsized roles. Think of Chinese in the Malay Peninsula. I mean, dissenters were occasionally burned to death when Anglican mobs set fire to their houses. So that's no good. I'm not trying to argue some maximalist position that discrimination is good, but as discrimination goes, it was generally pretty mild in England, although Joseph Priestley barely escaped with his life when a Birmingham mob came to burn down his house. But mobs burn down a lot of houses for many different reasons, and somehow the experience of being a minority that is actually disadvantaged in real ways provides a benefit of social trust. Okay, so Congregationalists were able to form proto-banks, completely based on trust, famously financing Newcomen's steam engine, and Newcomen was not even a Congregationalist, he was a Baptist. And then, as a specific form of discrimination, being banned from Oxford and Cambridge, so they had to go to dissenting academies, was actually a nice advantage. At this point in history, Oxford and Cambridge had spent about Eh, the last 200 years, providing really poor educations. Is that fair to say? It seems to be a consensus view, whereas dissenting academies were all up on bleeding-edge science and taught useful skills for business. And, of course, in that Religion for the Lower Classes episode, we covered how the dissenting congregations had to do so much self-organization, fundraising, lots of volunteer work that gave poor and middle-class people skills they could not have otherwise got. Let's talk Unitarians, including Quakers. Uh, these were one of the most important Industrial Revolution categories, and I, I still haven't mentioned them too much, though I know there are some in the listening audience. Josiah Wedgwood, Joseph Priestley, who preached that profit is good, money was virtuous, and so on. Cadbury of Cadbury Chocolate, Jedediah Strutt, the Darbys, Jonathan Carr, who started Carr's Biscuit, so which... Oddly enough, we always have a box in the house. The Stevenson's father and son, killers of William Huskinson. I I think it's pretty well known that Unitarians, including Quakers and Unitarian Universalists, punch above their weight in, in an American context, too, where you've got Thomas Jefferson, the Adams family in Boston, Ethan Allen, John Calhoun, Daniel Webster, Paul Revere, Benjamin Rush, William Penn, Superman, cultural figures like Louisa May Alcott, Susan B. Anthony, Lysander Spooner, crowd favorite. Charles Dickens, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Beatrix Potter, Melville, Horace Greeley. But British scientific figures include Isaac Newton, for heaven's sake, Erasmus and Charles Darwin, and David Ricardo. This is a list of heavy hitters. On the lighter side, there's P.T. Barnum, Richard Nixon, Barack Obama's mother's family, and Gary Gygax, inventor of Dungeons and Dragons. Mainly, they were big in metals and brewing and were big in weapons manufacturing. Though the Quakers eventually gave that up. Quakers had a special advantage in that their reputation for probity was such that people were eager to deal with them. Baptists had a good long list too, although they were seemingly more despised historically for their association with the Anabaptists. Listen to the Drown the Anabaptists episode if you want to know why they were viewed with such horror. You know, communism, polygamy, and wild religious fanaticism in Munster. All the human degradation and mass suffering and death, the starving population where only the rulers and their bodyguard executioners got enough to eat. And yet, without Newcomen, who combined being a Baptist preacher and inventor, I mean, where would we be? There was also Thomas Burberry, the clothing line, Jeremiah Coleman, founder of the Mustard Company. I think the later Baptists were more famous like John D. Rockefeller and J.C. Penney. Some of Charles I's regicides were Baptists, like Edmund Ludlow, whose memoirs is one of our primary source documents for the English Civil War and the Commonwealth period. Uh, similarly, some of Lilburn's Loveler leaders were Baptists also. My favorite Baptists might be two they are burning in hell, if, if there is such a place, Jesse James and the Sundance Kid. And just the whole idea of criminals and their religious affiliation is kind of amusing. So, half the entrepreneurs were dissenters, from groups making up, you know 5 to 10% of the population i emphasize the word successful successful because we don't usually know their names otherwise and in a highly competitive market most entrepreneurs will fail and be anonymous let's stop religion and talk about business failure bankruptcies were very common about 1400 per year after 1815 rising to about 3300 during the crisis of 1825 to 1826 And 1837, another crisis year, had about double the normal number. Bankruptcy is just a legal way to walk away from certain debts. It doesn't necessarily imply failure and poverty. Debts are canceled, and all the assets of the bankruptee, if there is such a word, are transferred to the creditor. But they can't take what's between your ears. So many, many people have discussed have a bankruptcy somewhere in their biography. The biggest name we've discussed so far is Oliver Cromwell, who, after business setbacks, would have been a bankrupt if that was a technical possibility in his time, when he was a mere yeoman farmer in the Fens, renting land to farm, not owning anything himself. That was an important time because he made extra money by supporting other Fenland farmers with lawsuits to help them resist the draining and enclosing of their lands. And Charles I was an investor in some of the biggest of those projects. Cromwell's resistance was important to his future reputation and standing, I'm I'm building something here. Let me circle around to it from another angle. Mokier asks if the typical entrepreneur, the median entrepreneur, if you will, because of the many failures and few successes, are worse off than if they never tried at all. And at first blush, that just seems wrong, right? If the expected value of an entrepreneurial activity is less than zero, then surely they would seldom happen. Well, such a view fails to account for several things. I mean, there is the admiration for successful men like Arkwright and Robert Owen, self-made men rising from nothing to become substantial, important figures. It's not unreasonable to try for a high-variance outcome like that. I mean, that's what you want, to be a hero. In the end, you're going to die anyway. The really religious who live for God's sake are always a minority, believed to be under 20% in England throughout this period, even at its most evangelical in the early 19th century. So most people are living for their own sakes, and a chance of winning big in life is often seized by the bold. Carpe diem, dude. Add to that what we know from behavioral economics, that people overestimate their own ability and likelihood of success. Adam Smith said, quote, the chance of gain is by every man more or less overvalued, and the chance of loss undervalued, unquote. Mokier points out that economic agents can be systematically optimistic. Quote, about the future payoff of uncertain activities and that such over optimism might systematically distort the allocation of resources. It could be surmised then that entrepreneurs and investors were, were fooling themselves into believing that their chances of success were better than they really were. Ironically, because most of the benefit of successful innovation spilled over to consumers, these distortions we socially beneficial, unquote. This is a true statement and also very bloodless because it needs to include the fact that the entrepreneur is living, striving, struggling to find his way forward, which has the corollary that he's growing, gaining abilities, becoming a more formidable man, a better man. And you're going to die anyway, so make a grab for it, carpe diem. And anyway, bankruptcy, which is the most likely thing, can't take away the man you are maximizing expected value a kind of average value is not something that everyone finds appealing and we know that many of those who did have business failure still won at life unsurprisingly not just oliver cromwell but samuel Oldno, not a well-known man but he was a merchant who employed many weavers of muslins things go badly for that business and he goes bankrupt owing arkwright two hundred thousand pounds you could fund the british government for almost a month on that amount but anyway, afterwards he goes into farming, like Cromwell, He becomes high sheriff and chairman of the Agricultural Society in Derbyshire, a highly respected rural gentleman. That's not a failure. John Roebuck, the chemist, loses control and bankruptcy of the Carron ironworks in Scotland in 1773. Carron becomes the most efficient and largest ironworks in the world, but he goes bankrupt because he bought and tried running a coal mine, a failed effort at vertical integration. But the new owners realize that Roebuck is still the best man in the world to run the ironworks, so he does that at a handsome salary. Sounds pretty good. Mokier points out Benjamin Outram. He kind of starts from nothing. He's an assistant to William Jessup, one of the great civil engineers, in the construction of the Cromford Canal. They find a massive iron and mineral deposit, digging a tunnel for the canal. He's able to buy nearby land and get at this mineral wealth. So he starts at ironworks, expands to a quarry, kilns, collieries. He's one of the early users of horse-drawn rails, which he himself produces. He also becomes chief engineer for the construction of many more canals, and is a consulting engineer on more. in addition to having this sprawling business empire, which is probably the largest in the East Midlands. And then suddenly, he dies in 1805, the year of Trafalgar and Austerlitz. Apparently, his wide range of skills did not extend to accountancy Because, in the end, claims, counterclaims, his family ends up with a very modest inheritance. But is there any way in which we can call a man like that a failure just because it turns out he was not rich when he died? And I guess we will end, as we often do, with a discussion of status. Uh, Chasing business success, which is obviously the most socially useful thing almost anyone can do, most beneficial to other people in economic terms... Even more useful than podcasting, I must admit, has an element of status seeking in addition to the other benefits of self improvement, you know, becoming a full human being, living an admirable life, and making money. This extra element comes about as a result of the relative openness of the class system in England, compared to France or Germany, to say nothing of places further east or south. In those places, crossing class boundaries was difficult or even illegal and trying could easily end in death. We've talked about this. The British class system that seems unfair and oppressive is by far the most open in the world except America and other frontiers. Quoting Daniel Defoe in 1703, Wealth, however, got, in England, makes lords of mechanics, gentlemen of rakes. Antiquity and birth are needless here, tis impudence and money makes a peer, unquote. Lots of peers and aristocrats in 19th century Britain were the sons of successful entrepreneurs. The father makes money, the son buys land, the grandson gets a title. Robert Peel's case went much faster. His father built a little empire of 14 cotton mills, mainly the hard way, one at a time. And Robert Peel, who established the first police force, the Bobbies, the Peelers, becomes the first true commoner to be a prime minister. It was the values of these entrepreneurs that made the modern economy. These are the bourgeois values of prudence, thrift, and justice that have a long history of being derided by artists and intellectuals like Lenin and Hitler. Was that unfair? I've been accused of taking cheap shots at intellectuals. Anyway, McCloskey's massive three-volume work on bourgeois values argues that it was these values that were responsible for the catastrophe. So the entrepreneurial impulse... If successful, could pay off in a massive status boost in addition to all the other good things that can come from it. So, let's end our look at these aspects of entrepreneurialism right here. And next episode, we'll dive into social norms and behavior for entrepreneurs. And I know that some of you right now are listening in low trust societies where people are not all that nice to unrelated people. So, I will try to discuss this without too much abstraction. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Sorry, we're skipping conversations with Cammy this episode and the next couple. I'm trying to reduce production time so I can get a little bit ahead. Our personal lives have been so busy since June that there hasn't been as much time for podcasting. Nothing bad. All good stuff. All great things to happen. But it's requiring more of my time and attention. Hopefully be back to normal by the new year. please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com.